Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. Sarah Chase is an author, journalist and has worked as a political advisor. She lived in Afghanistan, for God's sake, and advised the Pentagon. She writes primarily about the nature of corruption. Her books include Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, and most recently, Everybody Knows Corruption in America. This is coming out in paperback on 16th of November in the US. However, its title is different in the US. There it's called Corruption in America. It's not that bad. No, it's not called that. It's called Corruption in America and What is at Stake. Sebastian Junger recommended Sarah when he joined me on Under the Skin recently. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review there. It helps us and I'll read them out. And if you'd like to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of my weekly Under the Skin podcasts, all you have to do is subscribe to Luminary on Apple Podcasts or download the Luminary app. Also, I have a meditation podcast on Apple called Above the Noise. I mean, that's on Luminary actually, but go on there. In this part, we talk about anarcho-syndicalism and real change, the possibility of real change. I think you're going to like this conversation. We talk about how many things we assume are just normal but are actually structures of the system. Just one example, GDP growth. Why would you have that as the determinant for what, you know, for not only reality but even more specifically economic reality that all of these metrics could be altered we talk about some good stuff man you'll love this conversation see for yourself trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes that's, that's that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. From what you said early on about the revolving door metaphor, it's more that the problem is the door rather than the individuals that are passing through it, that there is a systemic and entrenched corruption that it but it, the point of it is that you can alter and change the individuals within it without altering significantly the outcome. When we had Yanis Varoufakis on here, he talked about being in the EU briefly as leader of Syriza or the co-leader of Syriza before Syriza sort of just went the way that these things go and bowed to administrative and bureaucratic pressure. And he said that even the most powerful person within the EU, the Chancellor, he recognised that that person had no power, that their power was only the power afforded to them by that role. If they breached the role in any way, they would be removed from it. So it, in a sense, shows you that there is no meaningful power even in the upper echelons of political systems. And I, that have stayed with me, that, because like, you're dealing with, even at the level of very powerful people, you're not going to get real change because the system is set up for its own preservation first and foremost, and as you described, to limit the ability of government to stand in the way of the pursuit of profit and to mask the these actions from ordinary people and to continually stymie and stifle dissent, hence how it works in conjunction with the media, or at least that's an example of how it works. Um, taking it much to a much more mundial level, um, you know, which in a sense seems foolish given the extent and depth of your experience. Just the other day. In my country, England, I went to the hospital to visit a friend. It was a Sunday. Walking through the corridors, I didn't see any people. Nobody works there anymore. It was, as you say, kind of hollowed out when you were talking about these institutions. And I know you mean administrative, bureaucratic agencies, but this is obviously, in a sense, still a public health uh, building, this hospital. It was empty. 
And it made me feel like to your point about the sort of unconscious and insatiable demand for profit or in however that is, whether that's private profit or GDP at the sort of international level, that it's, um, that it's an unassailable and uh, what do I want to say, Sisyphean endeavor that can never be fulfilled. Um, and it made me think that the other ideologies are possible, I thought, while I was there. Why not have a whole community built around that hospital? Why not have 10, 20, 30 people working there, people that greet you when you arrive, people that talk to relatives, people that are in rota working on the cleaning, the provision of food, everything, that whole ideology you can see has been bent to the maximization of profit, even though it is nominally, for now at least, a public uh, is a public interest, you know, um, institution. Um, and then again, quite conversationally, a mate of mine was saying how, like, you know, when his in broadband went down, his internet went down, to try and talk to a human being, that, you know, it's the ordinary experience that all of us have, you end up talking to someone in another country, in this case, India, and the, the impossibility of like talking to a human being, it would be possible. It's not unfeasible to have a situation where a particular outfit even if it's something like that's technologically advanced, you know, I'm not an anarcho primitivist. I don't think we should all be sat around without tech. I think tech is magnificent. I'm pretty down with comfort. I just feel like that what under ideologically underwrites this stuff has gotten out of control and it is feasible to have as the focus of our society and our social models, the experience of being human, given that that's what all of us are primarily experiencing. That's what all of our reality is determined by. So that, rather than an abstract idea such as profit, should be the centripedal component. So like, I felt like, yeah, why not have a situation where it's like, oh, this little, this two-mile area is covered by this little organisation. I'm just talking about syndicalism. I'm talking about breaking down centralised structures, creating confederacies instead of centralised agencies. And I wondered if like, this idea of breaking things down and sort of, in a sense, something as radical as um, the abandonment of certain economic principles that people don't like to countenance. I wonder if you, from your experience advising in government and working with these people, do you think that there's, do you think that that has merit, that kind of way of thinking? Uh, I think it does have merit. Uh, I don't think many of the elites that I have advised would say that it has merit. So that's the distinction. It's fascinating what you're saying. I went back when I wrote uh, my most recent book on corruption in America, um, to look at the last time in history that the world seemed to be so in the grip of these transnational, integrated, corrupt, or even kleptocratic networks. And I found the period between about 1870 and about 1935. Um, and I hadn't expected to spend as much time and effort on that period of time as I ended up doing, because I found it so interesting because the parallels were almost identical. But at the time, there, were, there was a much greater consciousness of this kind of network corruption as the enemy on the part of most ordinary people. So I, I focused on the United States, but I think the same is true in the UK and the rest of Europe, that there were very sophisticated and courageous um, uh, opposition movements, including the labor movement, and then including also political movements that were actually raising a lot of the issues you just did, including, and you said you're not an anarcho-what primitivist? <laughs> One of the really interesting movements was the anarchist movement. And what's fascinating is we all assume that 
um, they wanted no government. And that's not what they wanted at all. They wanted something much closer to what you're talking about, what they called a cooperative commonwealth, where you know different branches of industry would be owned by the people who worked in them and would uh, interact through you know, representative delegations and things like that. And I mean, I don't think their model for a different type of economy was that thoroughly, carefully blueprinted, but it certainly was along the lines of what you're suggesting. And the other thing that's interesting is many of the reforms that they and and the labor unions and another movement in the United States, which was farmers, you know, way off in the countryside in their covered wagons were coming together for meetings and for weekly, um, uh, you know, lectures and things like that. And they developed some of the most sophisticated potential solutions to what you're talking about, you know, to the issues that we're raising here, several of which were in fact adopted. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, I think what you're suggesting has tons of merit. It requires, as you said, placing society's value on something other than zeros and in bank accounts. And you mentioned the GDP. Why is not only GDP, but GDP growth the measure of the health of a country? Why couldn't we come up with a different measure which would then incentivize different types of policies? Um, there's something else that really distressed me in doing this historical research. I asked myself, okay, how did we get out of that? Like there was certainly a period starting around 1935-ish and running till about 1980 when constraints without the significant changes you're talking about, but constraints were put on this runaway profit-seeking, uh, on the destruction being visited on consumers and the environment, um, on you know, the exploitation of labor. What, what allowed for those reforms? I had at first thought that it was the opposition movements who had succeeded. In fact, they were all destroyed before their recommendations were adopted. The eight-hour day was another one. And what it took seems to be two world wars, a Great Depression, and a pandemic that makes the current one look like a joke. That's two genocides and the use of the nuclear bomb. In other words, that system, which we are now resembling today, drove us into almost unimaginable calamities. And let's look at what we've just lived through. Again, uh, economic meltdown that doesn't quite, you know, it's not quite as bad as the depression, a pandemic that's not quite as bad as the flu of 1918, two lost wars, well, they weren't world wars. I mean, how big is it gonna have to get before we're able to change the political economy in ways that you recommend? And my question is, are, are we going to be able to do it? Could we band together to make what you envisage happen before the calamity? 
I think the problem, Sarah, somewhat lies in the fact that the things that you have cited as problematic, inventoried, in fact, to the interests that are most dominant in the scale, in the, the way that we manage society, those were beneficial. Those wars are beneficial if you're an arms manufacturer. The pandemic is beneficial if you're a pharmacological manufacturer. So, like, as I sort of point out often in my live work and occasionally online, the, the the reason that change doesn't happen is because for the interests that matter, things are working okay. It, um, as a, a recent guest on the show, uh, Luke Kemper, he may have been citing James C. Scott, uh, said that you know it's not a bug, it's a feature. The way that things are going wrong, the problems that we're encountering, these like it's pretty sort of commonly understood that there's been a, the biggest wealth transfer in history has taken place during the last eighteen month period so from whose perspective is it a problem it's a problem if you lost a loved one it's a problem if you've seen your freedom impinged it's a problem if there if there are measures that you don't ideologically agree with but it ain't a problem if you if it's led to profit so for me that's an analytic tool that's always worth deploying the, the commonly understood as yeah who benefits if someone benefits from this situation then it's how is it a, how is it a problem how is it a problem and if you start to think like that people necessarily like people tend to start smearing you as an individual and calling you a conspiracy theorist but that's why i'm very interested to speaking to someone with your level of experience and expertise um just looking at some of the things that you've done like you've worked quite closely with the military what in the what capacity uh, like given now that i've only spoken to you for 15 minutes and i'm getting a, an, an understanding of the your perspective how did what were they thinking when they even employed you what, what capacity were you employed in if you're enjoying this podcast please join me over at luminary you can get that on apple for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of under the skin